I'm so glad you're here this evening. It is our honor here at St. Flannan's Cathedral to welcome this evening Leona O'Callaghan. In Reverend Paul's words, he is privileged to count Leona as a friend. In his opinion, Leona is one of the bravest, astute, and most outstanding individuals he has ever had the pleasure of meeting. She is someone who has overcome adversity and injustice. Leona uses her pain to help so many to rise above the odds and pain barriers. She challenges the justice system in the treatment of survivors. She works tirelessly on their behalf. Leona is the founder of the Haven Hub. Tonight, we welcome someone who talks the talk and walks the walk. Leona makes a difference and sheds light to dispel deep darkness. Welcome, Leona O'Callaghan. Wow, I better live up to my expectations after that introduction. Thank you very much for inviting me here today. Um, I suppose when I first met Paul Fitzpatrick, it was at a time when I, I suppose I was quite sad. I was sad because when I looked around me in my locality, I could see the devastation in families who had been affected by suicide in a way that I suppose didn't get the chance I did to come back from it. Um, there was four young suicides that week in Limerick and because of my own story, which I'll speak about, I, I suppose I just had this feeling of what can we do? What can we do as people? Because we're losing our best assets and our best assets as a nation and as, as a county um, is our people. And, uh, you know, watching people die from such a preventable illness is hard. Watching the devastation and the what could have been is very difficult. So what I did was I reached out to everybody I knew, including Paul. And I said, can we come together? Because if it's one thing Irish people do really well is we collaborate and we work together very, very well. And we got a number of different people around the same table. And we said, how come, how come we're losing this battle against mental illness? How come we are losing our best assets, our people through suicide? And what can we do differently? Now, I didn't at that time stand with a, a PhD or letters after my name. I, I stood as somebody who, who had actually felt the same way as those who had lost their lives. And all of our stories are different. For me, my story that led me to the, the moment where I decided I couldn't live anymore was through trauma. Um, I had been abused when I was a child for a number of years and that abuser returned to Limerick at a time when I had a young family and I was working full-time in a very stressful job. Seeing his face, seeing his eyes, seeing him at the children's park with other children became too much. Yet there was nothing I could do because for a long time I was told to stay quiet and just to, to keep it secret. And even when I told, I was continued to be told keep it secret. And I got as sick as my secret. I really did. I got very, very unwell because of this secrecy. I spent a long time worrying what the neighbours would think if I spoke about what had happened. Later on, I learned that the neighbours were amazing. 
The neighbour said, well done, Leona. You took him off the streets. Well done, you made it through it. Is there anything we can do? The neighbours were fantastic. But I was so caught up in what I suppose would be the older style of thinking of what would be said about me if I talked about the very evil parts of my history when I was a child with this man who had lost his way. And I decided I needed to speak up. So for the first time, I, I told the truth and I, I went to the Garda station. I went through the process. And um, yeah, he, he's now in jail. He got a, an 18 and a half year sentence. And um, yeah, so, so, so that part of it was, was very much needing to be done so that I could feel safe in my hometown. What I wasn't prepared for was the damage to my mind. So what I wasn't prepared for was the part of me who lost myself. I didn't know anything about suicide. In fact, if I'm very honest, I would have been very judgmental of anybody who would get to a point where they would leave their loved ones behind through choice. The first time I had witnessed or seen anybody affected by suicide was a friend of mine and her husband had, had died through suicide. And I held her child that night, who was five at the time, in my arms. And I remember looking up and I remember saying, how could you do this? I cursed him, I did. I said, how could you do this? This is so selfish. You're out of pain, but there's this five-year-old child in my arms now who's feeling that pain. You've just given it to somebody else. And I was angry and I couldn't understand. And I'm the same me who within a couple of years got to the point where I felt like I was the worst mother I could possibly be. I couldn't get up and I couldn't function. I was having panic attacks. I couldn't leave my house. I was always passing exams and did really, really well. I, I had gotten the highest in my school leaving cert at the time. I had gotten distinctions in the, in, in the accountancy I was studying. I had done really well academically, but suddenly it would take me four hours to study something that would normally take me 15 minutes. My brain didn't work as it once did. I couldn't actually work. I'd always worked. I didn't know what it was like not to work. And suddenly I couldn't work any longer because I was too sick to work. Because I was having panic attacks and my children were so small, I couldn't actually mind my children on my own because they would get scared when mum was scared. So how could I be their mum and I couldn't mind them on my own? I lost who I was and depression lies. So after what felt like forever of feeling this way, I then began to feel as though, well, you know what, if I wasn't here, then my children, they would grieve for a year and they'd be devastated. But then all these other people who are healthy would be around them and they would give them what they need. And I wouldn't be in the way because they wouldn't have to come up and check on me and, and see was I okay. And I started to genuinely feel that my children's best interests were that their mum actually wasn't here any longer. And that gave me an amount of calm for the first time in a long time. And I started to believe, God, you know what? God will look after my children. And my parents will look after my children and their dad will, but I'm inadequate right now. I'm unwell and I'm useless to my children. In fact, I'm in the way. 
And the thought of no longer having that place in their lives made me, made me feel as though I, I can actually do something about this. I, I can take myself out. And that was the hardest thing to admit. So there I stood, having judged somebody else for making the very same decision that I was about to make. I didn't want to reach out. I didn't want to, to I suppose, uh, I, had, I tried a few things. I tried medication. It wasn't working. I tried counselling. It was too hard. There was... 68 attacks when I was a child and I remembered every one of them and every time I tried to re I tried to recover I'd remember another one and it would make me feel as though I couldn't cope. The process of going through court took four and a half years and that was four and a half years of bringing me back to a place that I tried for years to forget ha had happened. So I lost my mind somewhat now, as I stand here well, I know that my children would never, ever be okay if their mum had ever died of suicide. I know that when I'm well. I was unwell. I took over 100 tablets and I slipped my wrists and I jumped off a bridge and I decided that my life needed to be over. That was in 2015. I stand here now and I am so lucky. I kicked the shins off the guys that took me out of that river and I would kiss their feet today because the world became a good place again. I found who I was again. I had always valued myself in my academic achievements. I suppose that's where my dad and his education and his need for education was just always held of high importance. Now it's about who I am as a person and I know I'm a good person and that's how I judge myself. Nobody can take that away, not even mental illness. And I'm not out of the woods. I'm not completely out of the woods. However, I have days where the world is an amazing place. I have amazing times with my children. I gave them a huge resilience. And even though there's things about my life that I wish they never learned as small children and that I wish they didn't have to know about the evil of the world, I'm there every day to tell them how good the world can also be. And I know they need that. And what I, I suppose I wanted to do is I wanted to take that pain that I had learned and that sense of a new beginning, that I was so lucky. It wasn't because I was this, and as, as much as, um, <laughs> as I'm so grateful for Paul for his amazing words, it wasn't actually that I was this strong, amazing person to say I met it through. I was bloody lucky. The, the boat was in the right place at the right time and they got to me on time. I was lucky because I had VHI under my ex-husband's policy. So I got into St. Patrick's Hospital and they had amazing resources. I was lucky because I found people in my life who could remind me of hope when I couldn't see it for myself. And so what I did was I got well. I concentrated on me for a long time. I stood away from the accountancy. And I started looking at, well, what's making me well? And I roll on a number of years and I see these other four people all in their young 20s, um, early 20s, and, and they weren't as lucky as me. And they had lost their lives. And I, the amount of sadness I felt around that was really hard. So I reached out to the amazing people around me and I said, guys, can we come together? And we looked and we said, well, when is the time that people tend to lose hope? And we found... The statistics will tell us that suicide is most common at nighttime, in the evening. Actually, it's at midnight. 
It used to be 11 o'clock at night, now it's 12 o'clock at night. When someone can't sleep, when they've, when they've done all they could to get through their day, and they're going to have another sleepless night, and it just all becomes too much. And I know that feeling. And there's nobody there. A&E can't cope with those sorts of situations. They don't have the resources. So what we did was we reached out to people who, like myself, kind of either know what it's like or have had somebody in their lives that's been affected in some way, but that came out the other side. And that's what we need when we lose hope. We need to believe there is another way, there is, a, there is another chance, that things won't always be this difficult. And very slowly, we started to come together. Uh, I say slowly, everybody else says quickly. Within six weeks, we had gotten a room from a building. Actually, Paul was the instigator of getting that first room in, in a building. Because all I knew is we had no money. We had no PhDs or anything. We had no funding, but we had really good people. And really good people got together and said, if anybody feels this way, and has the strength to knock on our door, we want to make sure we're there. And we don't want to close that door on anybody. And since then, we've, we've done 507 interventions. That was in December 2019 that we first opened the doors. 507 different times people have come and said, I don't know if I can do this anymore. 507 people, not even, well, some of them might have come back more than one, so I can't even say 507 people, but 507 times we have had amazing people sit. It could be like we, we open at eight o'clock in the evening and we finish at two in the morning. And Paul is one of those amazing people. People like Paul that would just sit there and say, you know what, I'm not quite sure all the time what to say, but I'm here and you're not on your own. And we all have cousins, and a lot of us have sisters and brothers. We all have neighbours, and we all have workmates. We have the local shopkeeper. And you never know what's going on in someone's mind. Anyone that went to school with me will say, oh, Leona was amazing at school. She did really, really well. And like that, the, the results did show that, you know, I'd gotten these really amazing results but I was the saddest person I would imagine in that school. I was so sad and nobody knew because on the outside it looked like everything was great. And in order for us to really feel true happiness, we have to be willing to accept and to sometimes sit with true pain. And as hard as that is, we can keep ourselves, life is busy. It's, it's a new buzzword is, you know, I'm busy, I'm so busy, you know, I haven't time, you know, it's, it's become a new buzzword. However, let's all slow down. Let's have real conversations. And when we ask each other, how are you? Take a moment before you say, yeah, I'm good, how are you? Take a moment to say, how am I actually? Take a moment to look at the person in the eye and say, how are you doing? And if we're afraid that somebody is going through a rough time, to try not to shy away from those conversations. Because even if you're not sure what to say, the fact that you're willing to sit with them in their pain is in itself healing. And I suppose I don't have the answers to the mental health system. I wish I did. All I do know is you can become very, very well after a long period of time of being unwell with the right support.
And through the Haven Hub and through the amazing people that we have that come in, nobody gets paid. <laughs> so everybody comes in eight o'clock in the evening, stays until two in the morning, and either through the phone or in person, sits down and has that Irish cup of tea and says, how are you doing? We have our, our living rooms and we have our kitchens at home. We have our local shops where that important conversation can also happen. You have an amazing community, obviously. I mean, I, I, I talk often to, to Paul and, and just by talking to him, I know what kind of community that you have. And, you know, it, it's just about that, keeping it real and being okay with pain because pain doesn't last. And that's what hope, they say, stands for, you know? Pain does not last. It does, it does actually pass eventually. It won't always feel this hard. So what we try to do now is we try to go in and, and in schools, we don't all, all learn necessarily. We learn all amazing things in school. We learn how to add, we learn even how to swim. What we don't know how to do is how to feel real sadness, real grief, and get up the next day and try again. We don't learn that skill. We need to start teaching that skill to our children, that skill of bounce back ability that skill of disappointment and how to sit with disappointment and how to handle our emotions. And I think through the Haven Hub now, we've, we've gotten into a few of the schools. We've worked with some of the, the, the teenagers and, you know, going, I suppose, sometimes, especially if all of us remember our teenagers, it can be really hard because you're going from emotions where you go from a two in your anger to maybe a nine or a 10 very quickly. <laughs> and that process in itself it's a skill that you need to slow that down, especially when that, when that emotion instead of anger is sadness. When, you're, when your pain and your sadness turns to despair, how do we catch it sooner? How do we recognize the signs? I'm beginning to struggle here. And when we do recognize those signs, what do we need to do? For me, I needed to put fun in my life. I was in survivor mode for so long. I needed to put some fun in. And when the per first person that asked me what I do for fun asked me that, I just, I remember looking and just resenting him <laughs> for even asking about the fun in my life. Where would you fit fun in the middle of all this pain that I was going through? I needed fun, actually. I needed the ability to have the small talk, but I needed to deal with my demons first. And I needed support and I needed people to be okay with talking about stuff that's very uncomfortable to do that. And Christmas is a time where, like that, for a lot of us, we, we miss our loved ones. We miss the people that we wish were here. We, you know, for some of us that, you know, maybe our families aren't, aren't always on good terms, we miss that part of us that believes that actually we're all one unit. And we all look at each other. And if we look at our social media a lot of the time, it makes it look as if everybody else has the Brady Bunch family and everybody else is there with the matching pajamas and they're all putting on their tree and everybody is smiling. And when we're not in that place, it can feel like a very lonely place. I'm here today to say I find Christmas hard. I'm not always in matching PJs. I struggle with Christmas, but I'm really gonna sit with the people who love me and who accept me for who I am and bring it back down to the actual basic things. Am I a good person? Not am I wearing those matching PJs. And what I encourage us to do this Christmas is instead of focusing too much on those materialistic things that really, honestly, 
we forget what we got last year and all of that, is, is to look around us, to see the faces of those that we do have, you know, that are still here with us, and to make time for those that we wish were, and to have them in our thoughts, because grief, there's love in grief, you know, grief isn't always a bad thing. If you're grieving somebody, you're also loving that person. So let's not be afraid to sit with our grief. Let's not be afraid to sit with our pain. But let's all remember to help each other back up after that period and not stay there for too long. And if anybody is struggling, I reach out and I say, you're, you, you have help as close as your closest phone. You're never on your own. What I love about the volunteers not only are they there for strangers when they come in, but I see them now and they're like a little family to them, themselves. They're checking up on each other. You know, they're checking, are they okay? They're, they're, they're a little community amongst themselves. So pick your people. And it won't always, unfortunately, be the family we're, we're living with, but sometimes you'll pick them wiser. You'll pick the people who love you for who you are and surround yourself with as many of them as you can. So my last message, I suppose, is just that, one of hope. You know, I, I, I don't hide away from, I suppose, the, the darkness that was there. I did make that decision where I was in such a dark place that I tried to end my life. And while I regret it, I also know that had I not had that journey, I'd probably still be an accountant. I'd probably still be on my, on my computer and balancing the, 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 the sheets. But I have no regrets when it comes to the amount of people that that's managed to help. We can all come together and use our pain in a way to teach the good that can come out of it, the resilience that can come out of it. I want to say a massive thanks to Paul, and I know he's not here. I hope he's really enjoying Maeve's um, play this evening. I know it was, it was clashing. Um, but he, he came to me, and to be honest, at, on the day he came to me, the Haven Hub was just an idea. And Paul himself came and said, as, as Paul does best, what do you need, Leona? What can I do? And I said, Paul, I need a bloody building. <laughs> I need a building. That's what I need now. And it might be too much to ask. And he said, not at all. I'll get you a building. And off he went. And a couple of weeks later, he came back and he said, now I have your building sorted. What else do you need? Well, I need people who are willing to stay up really late at night. And he said, okay, let's do that. He had a real get, let's, let's do this about him, him that I've learned and I've, I've gotten a little bit of. Um, so like that, I, I hope from my own story, you can see that as well as looking at the, the bright and the, the, the positive stuff, we don't need to have this toxic positivity, I suppose I call it, where we ignore the pain. First of all, we have to make room for it and say, well, look, that happened. And your story might be very different, but your story might be a bit painful. But next to pain comes hope. And after hope comes a peace. And so let's all have the strength to deal with the things that play in our mind so that we don't have to be so busy that we never think of them. That when our mind goes quiet, that's okay. And that we can sit in that peace. I just, yeah, so that's kind of my own story. I, I'm sure like that, there's, there's many, many stories similar to, to, to my own where people get to a place where they lose hope. And I think by talking about it and by seeing others recover and come back from that place, I'm, you know, my, my kids are now doing really well. Um, I have one of them in college. I have a 22-year-old who teaches wellness and stuff like that. I have a 14-year-old who's amazing and the funniest guy you'd ever meet. Um, and they know sorrow, but they know how to come back from sorrow. 
Um, and I'm very, very proud of them. And I'm very supported by people that I wouldn't have thought would be in my life, but that, that, that choose to be rather than had to be. And I, I'm very grateful for those as well. I'm very grateful to be here tonight and to be asked to speak. Um, and I'm very grateful to Paul as well for, for shedding the, the message of the help that's there for, through the Haven Hub. We do different courses. We have a lads group for, for men because men find it really hard sometimes to talk about how they feel. The lads shed is there for that. Just so that like that while they're, whether it's playing bowling or soccer, the only thing they don't do is they don't go drinking together because sometimes that can make things worse. But they do activities so that they can support each other, talk about their day. And that's going really well. We have wellness recovery action planning and we've delivered that probably 12, 13, 14 times in Limerick alone this year. And that's given a message of how to spot your early warning signs, how to put wellness tools in place and how to get out of crisis if it does happen. And we have decider skills and that, that teaches us how to regulate our emotions, how to mind our relationships when we're struggling because we cut a lot of people off and it's hard to let people in because we don't feel very likable. How do we, how do we choose better? Because we need people, we're social species and we need people even when we don't want them. And it helps us to make those choices. And then we have our volunteers that stay really late in the evening if anybody ever wants to talk. So if you or anybody that you know is ever, you know, on a Friday or Saturday evening, feeling at a loss, feeling like, I don't know if I can do this anymore, or just even struggling to sleep, you can pick up the phone, you can come into us, have the cup of tea, and sit in really good company. And if you don't even want to talk about what's wrong, just don't be on your own, because you're not. So that's my message this evening. Um, if there is any questions, I think we'd, I, I'd said, yeah, so thanks. Thank you so much, Leona. Um, as mentioned, we can take some questions if you have any questions with Leona or want to talk about any ideas that she mentioned. I was very interested in, in what you were saying about um, disappointment in children because when I was growing up, I'm 65 now, when I was growing up, like, you know, there was a first, a second, and a third, and then there was the rest. And now it's like everyone has got to get a gift, a present, to be top of the class, you know. And it's such a big culture shift. And, and I'm just wondering how as a society we can sort of deal with this to, to um, you know, because we don't want our children to be disappointed. But, like, not everyone can win. No. So, so they have to learn how to, you know, to deal with it. So I have think, you got yeah. any advice there? I'm glad, I'm glad you raised it. I think for me, what we do, we, we've gone to a stage where because I suppose a long time ago, a lot of us in our, uh, you know, might have experienced a lot of trauma and there's a lot more, I suppose, knowledge now around mental health. Um, therefore, we've, we've become very protective of our children and that's a good thing. However, <laughs> however, sometimes we protect children to the, I think at times, to the level at which they don't know what it's like anymore when things don't go their way. Where, you know, if they make bad choices, we rush in and we, 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 we catch them before they fall. And you know what? That makes us as parents feel better. And what I've learned and what I think is important that we have to do is we say, am I doing this for them or me? Am I catching them because I don't want to watch them fall or am I really doing it for them? Because we need, in, a, in the shallow end, to learn that actually 
even if I was really looking forward to something and something happens and it doesn't happen, you know, and, and I don't get what I want, that's okay. Life comes with disappointments. Life comes with adversity. And at the end of the day, you find your way through. And I think sometimes when we protect our children to the level at which they know nothing about sadness and nothing at all about disappointment, then when they become adults, they get a real bad shock. And that's where I think the mental health difficulties can often happen with young, young adults, is they, they, they've been protected to a level that they don't know. And then they, they reach the real world and they're disappointed a lot. And they don't get that job they went for. And they don't know how to deal with that emotion because we didn't teach that. So to some degree, absolutely, there's things I wish I could have protected my children from knowing. You know, uh, when, when, when I did go to trial, I remember the, the day after, because I wanted everybody to know who he was, I waived my anonymity, and that meant his face would be everywhere because I wanted other children protected. But that also meant my face was everywhere. And I had a 10-year-old at the time. So for the first time, I remember having to sit down and, and explain to a 10-year-old because I knew he'd read it. And it was the hardest part of my journey to sit with my 10-year-old and explain what rape is and what rape on a child is. And I'll never forget having to have that conversation with him. But you know what? He actually already knew. But he never knew that you could talk about it. And he never had the opportunity to say how he felt. So his little mind was dealing with something that he'd put together anyway. But I, as an adult, felt better in not talking to him. Do you know, so it was actually better for him to sit with him as hard as it was and check in with him to see what he knew. Because by doing that, before it came out on the papers, I realized he knew a lot more than I thought. And they find their own ways of making sense of the world. One of the things I speak, <laughs> I feel very passionately about is we see clusters of suicide in young people at the moment. And I see on the comments on Facebook, and, and, and they mean well, you know, well, somebody dies through suicide, somebody young dies, and somebody else says, you know what, they've the best bed in heaven now. They're up there and they're dancing with the angels. But you know what, they're dead. And we have to, instead of glorifying things and taking the pain out of things, we need to actually allow things to be a reality as well. Because the problem is, if we're there and if our message is, this young person who has now died through a very preventable illness is, that's, that's passed. If we give them, they're finally at peace. They're, they're up there, they're singing with the angels. Then another person who's feeling like life, they can't go on. And another vulnerable young person that sees those messages, that wants nothing but that peace of mind, is going to see suicide as the answer. All I have to do is get the guts up to do what it takes and I will sing with the angels and I'll have the best bed in heaven and I will be at peace. And we need to take that message away. And I think we give that message to make ourselves feel better. And I think, unfortunately, we need to sit with, you know, that person died. And I, I would much rather messages from younger people to younger people of saying, I wish I knew. I wish I told, you told me how much pain you were in. I wish you were still here and I miss you. And life is never the same without you because that's reality. So I think by actually being afraid to, to allow young people to know what reality is, sometimes we're actually doing more harm than good. And it's a fine balance. You know, it's a fine balance depending on their age. But I hope that that helps your question. <laughs>
You're giving us so much wisdom. <laughs> I'm glad there's a recording. This is one to listen to many times. We're just so lucky to get to get your wisdom, Leona. Thank you. Any other questions or thoughts? I know that I can't form a question fast enough, but one thing that I loved what you said was about um, learning to have sorrow. Learning the, It's almost like having to learn a new muscle, though, isn't it? We're so unused, just like what you said, we've been protected so much, or almost that toxic positivity has been really entrenched in us That's that when we first go into those waters of sorrow it feels like something's wrong with us so how do you what, what would you say to that or what's the that little bit of encouragement of just put put a toe into the sorrow don't be quite so frightened of it I suppose I always give the example and and like my dad like every dad would have loved me very much but um and he's still around um but one thing he didn't understand is he didn't understand depression and he used to try really hard, and he still does from time to time. And he'd say, Leona, someday I hope you make the right decisions. I hope you wake up and I hope you start looking at all the good things in your life and stop looking at the bad things. And when I was in the middle of my depression, my dad would give me that lecture and he'd say, you, every morning you wake up and you have a decision and you can choose to think about the good or you can choose to think about the bad. And someday I hope you make the right choice. And all that did was it made me feel very, very responsible for the pain I was in, like I was choosing it, like I, I enjoyed it or I liked it. And what my dad tried but failed to understand and what many of us fail to understand unless we've lived it is it's not a choice for a lot of people. Me talking about it and about my pain, that is me moving on from it. And if we can understand that by actually being able to at times remember a bad memory or at times talk about the concern we have about the future. That is us trying to live with, to move on. Um, in order for me to be able to, to, I suppose, be happy, I needed to stop running away. And some of us run away by alcohol. You use alcohol to run away from reality. Some of us, we use, you know, the games, the, the, the young people are on games. Sometimes it's drugs, prescription drugs. Sometimes it's work. For me, it was work. And sometimes we need to stop running. And, and we need to take a quick look behind us and see what we're running from so that we can learn how to walk. And, and for me, it was very much, I needed to learn how to sit with the feeling of it's not okay right now, but tomorrow it'll feel better. It's like a wave. And when I feel really, really, really badly, I know I'm probably at the peak of that wave. And I just have to sit with it rather than ignore it. And there's a big difference, I think, you know. So for me, that's what works, is, is just sitting with the idea, this is a wave, I'm at the peak, and soon it'll start to feel a whole lot better. Because if I pretend the wave isn't there, I'm washed up and sure. <laughs> Thank you. No problem at all. Thank you, guys. Yeah, let's give another round of applause. Um, at the request of Reverend Paul, I'll finish with a prayer for us all. And, uh, and then just again, thank you for the, um, coming along to the Advent Talks this year. Uh, we've had four amazing speakers and it's really finished with a special one. Father, thank you so much for this time and place for us to be together and to receive such hard-won wisdom. May it help form our hearts May we help, may you help us sit with what's hard 
and please bless Haven Hub, especially over the holidays. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We'll see you soon.